there are many surprises when you move to new countries, and uh, Peter and Katie are going to discover lots of new things, I'm sure. Uh, but we as a family, when we moved to America, uh, there were lots of things that struck us as just being quite different. And one of the biggest things, I think, for us was to see the number of people who would talk about their faith in Jesus. And so at the school gate, you just have normal conversation, and people would want to tell you that they attended some sort of church or another. It was amazing to me the number of second-hand car salesmen who, on discovering that I was a pastor, were, were just so happening to be considering what church they wanted to attend and uh, were most interested to meet me and help me uh, make this purchase as well and oh, maybe come along uh, to church with me as well. And how does every American politician finish his speech? God bless America. Amazing. And then I used to watch some of the acceptance speeches at the Oscars or the Grammys. And uh, you would see one minute sort of a video or uh, the, the band doing some number with sort of strange gyrations and not many clothes. And, and then they would get up to uh, receive their award. And after a few expletives, they would just say, and I just want to thank Jesus. It's all very odd as a Brit to look at all of that. Talking about God is not what's considered normal conversation here, is it? I don't know whether you saw the results of the Richard Dawkins Commission study that was done by the Mori Poll. Uh, it, it actually bears worth you know, looking at it. Um, he span it a certain way, but I was quite amazed at this study about religious belief. And from the sample that they had, 54% of people recorded themselves as being Christian. This is a British study. 54% said that they were a Christian. 30% said that they had strong religious beliefs and were Christian. Only 17% said they attended church once a week or more. And I was quite frankly shocked. It was as high as 17%. Because most other studies are saying it's of 3 to 5%. Uh, they talk about this halo effect, that when you're asked on the phone, how often do you go to church, you tend to up it a bit. Oh, yeah, go pretty regularly. Uh, but I was amazed at those figures. And so it seems to me that it's not just America where there are so many who proclaim to have faith in the God of the Bible and yet don't seem to ha- it doesn't seem to translate really into any sort of meaningful uh, contact with a church family in some way. Well, what does God have to say about this? Well, please open your Bibles to James chapter 2. And if you're visiting today, then no, we're just working through the book of James right now. And if you don't have a Bible with you, pick up the, a red Bible in front of you and turn to page 1,214. 1,214. I'm just going to read uh, the right-hand column there from verse 14 down to 26. I'm, on, I'm going down with a sore throat and a sore head, so apologies. Uh, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed. 
but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let's keep your Bibles open and let's just pray, shall we? Father, we ask that you would grant to us living, saving faith. And that you would grant us to understand this passage, to be encouraged by it and to be challenged by it. And we pray that none would leave the church today without having a faith that is alive, that shows itself in works. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, then verse 14 is a bit of a shock, isn't it? What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him. James is a bit of a provocative pastor. Um, can faith in Jesus save you? Well, the obvious answer if you read the rest of the New Testament is yes. And the only reason that James could ask this question uh, is because they were used to hearing that salvation is by faith. Look at how he describes them back in chapter 2 verse 1. My brothers... As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the main point, but let's pause to consider that statement. It is an amazing statement, isn't it? The James who wrote this is more than likely the half-brother of Jesus. So he grows up with Jesus as his older brother. Uh, he sees teenage Jesus. He sees Jesus going out working as a carpenter. And, 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 and as James observes his half-brother, and sees his public ministry, sees his humiliating death upon a cross, and <laughs> the, sees the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is, where Jesus, this is where James gets to in his belief about his half-brother. He is the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may love your brother, but, you know... Those words don't easily come from a brother's lips about another brother, do they? But James sees Jesus and he says, 
I know you believe in him, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, promised in the Old Testament scriptures, that Jesus really did say all those amazing things, really did do those amazing miracles, did die in humiliation upon the cross, was raised from the dead, it has all authority in heaven upon earth. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, the only way to describe my brother is that he is glorious. And so, you know, this is the baseline understanding as he speaks to them. They knew that being saved was about having faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. They knew it was uh, faith alone that saved them. But James is a great pastor. The more I study this book, the more I have come to appreciate what a genius pastor he is. Because he wants to wake them up. Uh, he, he wants to get under uh, the surface. And uh, he wants to check that they've got real, genuine faith. And I think these verses stir us to self-examination this morning. To see if we have the faith that really counts. There's no doubt that genuine faith in Jesus will save us from hell to heaven. No doubt about it. But the question is, have we got that saving faith? Because actually that's not the faith that he's talking about in verse 14. Have a closer look. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? So the person that's being considered in verse 14 is someone who is outwardly professing to be a believer, but James says has no real external evidence to back it up. Can that sort of faith save him? And I think the clear answer from these verses is no. Look at verse 17. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 20. Faith without deeds is useless. And verse 26. So faith without deeds is dead. Now, this is clearly very serious, isn't it? We've been considering now over a number of weeks um, the danger of being self-deceived. The danger of being sort of deluded, thinking that we are spiritual, religious people, but actually we're not right with God. And I'm sure you've had this experience, as I've had, is that I've met many people in life who are quite convinced that everything's all right between them and God because, I don't know, they were uh, christened as a baby, baptized as a baby, or that they went to some evangelistic event a long time ago and went down the front and said the sinner's prayer, or um, uh, they go to church at Christmas and Easter and so forth, or they sang in the choir, and they're quite convinced that that, that means that they are right with God because of those things. How terrible to think that we are saved and right with God and yet be heading to hell. That is the awful possibility that James is holding out here, that you could be an outward professing uh, Christian. You could say, well, I believe. And yet there's no real substance. There's no saving faith. And James writes this letter precisely because he doesn't want them to be self-deceived. He doesn't want them to be deluded. He wants to make sure that they've, they've got the right sort of faith. Not a spurious faith, but a saving faith. 
And uh, I, I can't think of anything more useful for us to consider right now. And James is a great pastor. He knows people love illustrations. It's always a killer coming up with fresh illustrations as a pastor, especially if you've preached in the same place for a number of years. But he's given us four illustrations. How kind of James, right? Two examples of dead and useless faith. He talks about the dead faith of the armchair philanthropist. And he talks about the dead orthodoxy of demons. And then he gives two examples of, of saving faith. The saving faith of Abraham and Rahab. And really, there's lots of contrasts between these two. And what I want to do to begin with is consider the first example and the last example because they are beautiful contrasts with each other. So think about uh, the faith of this armchair philanthropist in verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's a simple illustration, isn't it? It's a piercing illustration. I mean, what good is it to say you're a Christian, to say you have faith in Jesus Christ, but actually have no practical concern for genuine uh, brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, what good is that? What good is that for the hungry and cold Christian? No good at all. But that's not James's point. Um, what good is that sort of faith to the one saying it? And the, the answer is far more serious. No good at all. Pious faith talk with no practical care or concern for genuine Christians is a sign of a useless profession of faith. It's dead faith. It indicates, in fact, that we are not saved people but instead that we're heading for God's judgment. Look back at verse 13. It's a very sobering verse. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus taught in one of his parables. Do you remember? In the parable of the sheep and the goats. Uh, this is what it says in Matthew 25. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he'll reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these brothers, you did not do for me. Very sobering. And the contrast to this sort of useless faith of the armchair sort of uh, good wisher is Rahab. And um, look at verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Now, this is a big surprise, isn't it? Great examples of biblical faith. Well, let's pop into the brothel. Rahab, come to center stage. Rahab's occupation uh, would not have suggested that uh, here would be a great example of biblical faith. 
But that's what James does. It's, 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 it's quite breathtaking, isn't it? And we read from the Old Testament reading from Joshua chapter 2. It tells us of the, the spies that were sent out to spy the land for the Israelites in advance of the invasion. The king of Jericho heard, and uh, he goes looking for these spies to kill them. But Rahab, the prostitute, takes these men into her house. She hides them. She sends these uh, people away when it's safe. And she is an example of amazing faith. Listen to the words again of what she said. Um, When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. There she was steeped in all the sort of false pagan religions around her. And she'd come to the point of clarity where she says, Well, I know that your Lord and God has promised you this land. And I know he's the God of heaven and all the earth below. And because she has that faith and confidence in such a powerful, almighty God, she risks her life to care for God's people. That's the point of contrast, isn't it? Here's the... um, the philanthropist who says, oh yeah, yeah, go away and hope you get some food and some clothes. He does nothing to help God's people. Here's Rahab and she puts her life on the line to uh, care for these people, to care for God's people. It's an amazing contrast. A great illustration of faith. And it was saving faith, wasn't it? Because she put that red cord out of the window and then when they came and marched around Jericho and the whole thing fell down, the only people that were saved was that area where Rahab and her household were met. Here's the point. Our faith in God will always be made visible outwardly by our care and compassion for God's people. That is one of the tangible signs of saving faith, that we have a genuine care and concern for God's people, for the church. Saving faith is faith that works. Faith that is shown in action. You can't separate faith and works. And it sounds like verse 18 of chapter 2, the objector is coming in and, and he says, um, well, some will say, you have faith and I have deeds. He's trying to separate the two, that you can have well, sort of a faith person, maybe he's thinking about the, you know, you've, someone's got the gift of faith and someone's got the gift of compassionate works. But James is not talking about special gifting of faith. He's talking about the general sort of faith that you must have to be a Christian. And those faith and works go together. Show me your faith, verse 18, without deeds. And I'll show you my faith by what I do. Can you show your faith without deeds? It's not an organ in your body. It's not like we can, you know, cut you open and and pop out your faith on the table like a kidney and kind of examine it. No. Um, It's like asking to see electricity without looking for evidence of light and heat. The, The reason you know the electricity is on and flowing is because... You put the light switch on, the light comes on. Or the stereo comes on. That's, that's how you see electricity. And faith is like that. Saving faith is made visible by the reality of our works. Then he goes on to give another illustration of useless faith. The useless orthodoxy of demons in verse 19. Um, it seems as if he's countering another challenge. As if someone would say, well, you know, I can prove to you that I have saving faith because I can say the creeds. 
I have a good theological knowledge. I know the prayer book. I know the uh, Westminster Confession. I can, I've got good theology. And, the, and James sort of comes in to counter that, verse 19. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. It's a funny thought, this, but the devil and his hosts all have thoroughly orthodox faith. They would get very high grades in theology exams. They know the truth about God, but all it does is it causes them to shudder. Now, if you're studying theology or a doctorate at New College, you should be very sobered by this. You can be very knowledgeable about deep doctrine. You can read all the great doctrinal thinkers down through centuries and not have saving faith. In fact, there have been chairs of... uh, theology in universities who've been atheists. The faith of demons does not save them because they don't do anything about it. They won't repent. Now contrast that with the saving faith of Abraham in verses 21 to 24. So the orthodox faith of demons just causes them to shudder in fear of God. Well, look at him. Verse 23, Abraham And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Saving faith produces friendship with God rather than a shuddering fear because you won't repent. Now if you're new to Christian things, you might not know too too much about Abraham. He's a pretty important guy to get to know in the Bible. Um, He's the one that God calls from modern-day Iraq, tells him to leave his country and travel to what is known as modern-day Israel. And that God says, I'm going to give you that land and I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless you. And through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. And Abraham obeys God and goes. But the big problem as Abraham wanders around this land that he's going to be given is that he's childless. Up to 99 years old. He's got no kids. His name means exalted father. How embarrassing. You know, you go into the shop and buy your things. Uh, What's your name? Uh, Exalted father. Oh, how many kids you got? None. No kids. And uh, God calls him to look out at the stars one night. And says, can you count the stars, Abraham? And he said, you know, you will have more descendants than you can count stars in the sky or sand on the shore. And this is what it says in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord. He's around 100. He believes the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. God declares him to be in the right with him because Abraham believes God's promises. And then God says, you know what, I'm going to give you another name. Abraham, instead of Abraham, Abraham, the father of many nations. Well, that's really piling on the pressure. But Abraham believed God. And amazingly, after some mishaps, his wife Sarah does conceive and they have baby Isaac. And then you get, you know, after this incredible story, this incredible story, you get to Genesis chapter 22. And it's a very strange incident because God then says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to take him to this mountain. I want you to sacrifice him on the altar. And incredibly, Abraham 
hears God's word, and does what God says. That's evidence of saving faith, isn't it? People who hear God's word and do it. And so he starts off on the journey very early in the morning, heads off, and uh, puts his son on the altar. And just as the knife is about to come down, there's a, a, a loud voice from heaven, don't lay a hand on the boy or do anything to harm him. For, you, for I, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And this is James' illustration of saving faith. Look at verse 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. I think what James is illustrating here is that the saving faith of Abraham that he had back in Genesis 15 where he simply believed the promises of God, even though there wasn't any uh, evidence to uh, encourage him to do so. He believed God's word. That saving faith there was shown outwardly as true, genuine saving faith when he obeyed God in Genesis 22. The faith that saved him was a faith that matured and developed and grew through all the struggles of his life. That's what we're learning from chapter 1, isn't it? The blessing of trials that God uses to shape and mature and complete our faith. Well, so it was in Abraham's life. And the great thing about reading Abraham's life, it did have his ups and downs. It wasn't just a stellar story. But he got to the place where he so trusted God that he was willing to obey God. Now, God doesn't, didn't want the sacrifice of his son. But his faith was tested and proved to be totally genuine. It's a faith that was willing to sacrifice the most precious thing in obedience to God. What's genuine saving faith look like? It looks like when we have genuine care and concern for God's people. It looks like when we're willing to risk what is most precious to us and and, and lay it sacrificially before Him because we believe God's word. We step forward in faith. That's saving faith. People try and say that um, James, the Apostle James and Paul are in contradiction. That James, the brother of Jesus, is in contradiction to Apostle Paul. A lot of ink is spilt on it, but I I don't think there's any uh, contradiction here at all. And I think he's dealing with two very different pastoral situations. I think Paul is dealing with the person who thinks that he's Saved and right with God because of all their religion. Maybe this is the faith of the, uh, of the British as revealed in the Dawkins study. You know, well, I was baptized as a baby, so I'm a Christian. Uh, I was confirmed. I occasionally turn up for Christmas and Easter. Maybe, uh, you know, I give blood. I try and be a decent chap. And that means I'm all right with God. You know, these are my works. And Paul writes to such a one and says, you know... None of our works can save us. None of those good deeds are saving. It is only uh, trusting Christ and his act of salvation that will save us. But James is dealing with a different pastoral situation. He's speaking with the person who claims to have an orthodox faith, but there's nothing to show for it. And perhaps, and uh, maybe my American friends will beat me up afterwards, perhaps this is more of the faith of some Americans 
where they've got all the pious talk, all the Jesus talk. Yeah, I'd love to come to church with you and all of that. Listen to Christian radio and Christian TV. But it doesn't seem to have any impact on the life. This huge percentage of born-again Christians where it doesn't seem to have any tangible output on their life. Now, we can debate that later. These are, these are just broad brushstrokes, you understand. And James would say to someone who, who, who outwardly professes to be a believer but has never laid anything down in risk before God, has never really shown any tangible love and concern for God's people, who doesn't really obey God's word, and he wants to say to them, don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself to say just because you say you're a Christian that you are right before God. Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Saving faith is the one that will give evidence. And I love the contrast between Abraham and Rahab. You know, the contrast between the saving faith of a patriarch and a prostitute. It is extraordinary, isn't it? A man and a woman, a Jew and a Gentile, both have saving faith. I want to ask you today, here at Charlotte Chapel, would you examine your own heart today? This study this week has caused me to examine my own heart. Do you see evidence of saving faith in your own life? Is your life marked by sacrificial obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have we ever made sacrifices in our lives because of our faith in Christ? Um, Is it marked by the way that we risk our life for the sake of others? We put ourselves out for the sake of brothers and sisters who trust the Lord Jesus Christ? Is our life marked by this warm, genuine love for God's people and his church? Now, if the answer is no, then the thing to do is not say, well, I'm going to try really hard to do these good works. That's not the point. If the answer is no, what you need to do is come to this glorious Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sin and ask him to forgive you. Ask him to change you. Because our Father God, who so loved his one and only Son, and said to Abraham, no, don't harm your one and only Son. He was the one who allowed his one and only Son to be upon the sacrifice of the cross for you and for me. He sent his perfect, sinless, glorious son to die in the place of us who are sinners, who fall short. And it's by trusting in him that we are forgiven and that we are changed. He puts his Holy Spirit into us to give us this lively faith that will love and care for God's people, that will so love this glorious Jesus that we will be willing to fly to a completely strange island and make our kids learn French because we so love the Lord Jesus and we think he's so glorious we want people to know about it. I presume that's why Peter and Katie are going. That is real saving faith that's being evidenced there, isn't it? 
And the wonderful thing about pastoring this congregation is I see so many in this church who evidence this saving faith. It is honestly a joy to... Uh, I get to see things that other people don't get to see. I get to see the way that people very quietly are providing finance. Just They kind of give me some money to pass on to someone who is in a bit of need. They don't want them to know about it, but they want to care for them. I get to do that. Do you know, one of the reasons that people who are sick don't want their names to go in the bulletin is because of the avalanche of love they're going to get. I say, I'm too ill to take this avalanche of care. Do you know what I mean? Well, isn't that a wonderful thing in a, in a strange way? It is a wonderful thing, isn't it? That this church, when, when people, people will actually take an active prayer and love and care and concern, provide meals and do all of that. And this is all evidence of a lively, saving faith. It is a great joy. And one of the exciting things about the new deacons group is to see uh, Luke Wilson taking on this responsibility uh, of, of, we haven't come up with a name yet, practical love and care, um, mercy ministry, if you can think of a better name, let's go for it. But uh, Luke is going to be wanting to develop as, as a deacon role ways that we can grow in our practical love and care for people within the congregation and out with the world. Pull together various things that are going on in terms of the care shelter, uh, the care van, and uh, the, the various things that people are involved with, with the Bethany uh, uh, Trust and so forth. And if you'd like to be involved in such compassion and benevolence ministry, then speak to Luke Wilson or Norman uh, Wallace. And it is a joy and a privilege to partner with you, Peter and Katie, as you head off. And we recognize that uh, you are making sacrifices, and we know that you don't consider it that because of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll pray that it will produce great fruit. Doug Moo uh, quotes Martin Luther in his preface to the book of Romans. Now famously, Luther didn't like the book of James. He called it the epistle of straw. He kept mocking poor wee Jimmy. And, um, and yet Luther does a brilliant job of actually capturing this passage of James 2. Listen to what Martin Luther says here. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but know neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Let's pray.